Amen. Hi, everybody. How are you? Good. It's great to see you. Um, we are wrapping up today a series we've been working through called Sharks and Selfies. If you've uh, been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we're talking about fear. And so if you're new, maybe you don't know what Sharks and Selfies has to do with fear. Um, it's very common. One of people's major fears in the public is sharks. We're terrified of sharks, and yet we're not very terrified of selfies, right? Most of us have taken a selfie. Some of you did it today already. Um, and yet, statistically, we're told that many more people die every year from taking selfies than actually die from shark attacks. And so the question we've been wrestling with, with the subject of fear is, are there things in our lives that sometimes we're afraid of that we shouldn't be afraid of, that God has already taken care of them in Jesus? Uh, and, there, and then there are there other things that we don't hold in enough high reverence and awe and uh, holy fear about what God could do and, and who he is. And so that's what we've been wrestling with and working our way through. And so to wrap up the series, to begin this message, I wanna do something that I hardly ever do. Uh, and if you've been to Frontline for a long time, you know I don't typically start messages this way, but I wanna begin with a little bit of a history lesson about a hero of the faith. And so I wanna introduce you to a guy named William Tyndale. This is William Tyndale. He lived in the late 1400s um, into the early 1500s. How many of you know the name William Tyndale? Just out of curiosity, raise your hand. Okay, so a few of you, okay. So you know a little bit about his story, who he was. So I'll introduce you to William Tyndale in this way. In the 1400s in Europe, the only people who had access to the Bible were church officials. And the only Bible that there was available at that time in Europe was a Latin translation of the Bible called the Vulgate. And that had been translated about a thousand years before that. Okay, so to say the, the version of the Bible they had was outdated is a dramatic understatement. Now, the only place you could actually get access to the Bible was a Bible, the physical copies of the Bible were either locked up in libraries or they were literally chained to pulpits in churches. Imagine literally like a chain to the Bible. Can you imagine living in a time where you, you had no access to the Bible, where you literally couldn't read it for yourself? Not only because you couldn't physically put your hands on it, but because even if you did put your hands on the Bible, you couldn't read it because it wasn't in English. It wasn't in the language that you read and understand and can speak. So that was the world that William Tyndale entered into. And so in 1522, William Tyndale, he was a member of the clergy, he decided something very bold and courageous. He decided he was going to translate the Bible into English and put it in the hands of as many people as he possibly could so that the common person could read the words of Jesus in their own language. And when he began to talk about this and began to start this, other members of the clergy, other high-ranking church officials began to confront him and began to challenge him on this. And so the famous quote, if you know William Tyndale, you know this quote because this is like what he's known for saying. He said this in response to them. He said, if God spares my life before many years pass, I will make it possible for a boy behind the plow to know more scripture than you do. Bam, drop the mic and walk away. Isn't that awesome? That is some boldness. That is some courage. I'll make it, a boy behind the plow will know more scripture than you do. And that's exactly what William Tyndale did. He actually had to hide in Germany. He had to escape and hide in Germany. And from Germany, he translated the Bible into English. And from his English translation, many other uh, English translations have been made over the centuries. But he had to smuggle copies of the Bible into his homeland of England. And he did this for a period of time until he was finally apprehended. And then a tribunal of the church convicted him of heresy for what he was doing. 
And then he was handed over to civil authorities who, at the, when he was the same age that I am today, these civil authorities of the land tied him to a beam, strangled him to death with a rope, and then burned his body. I want to let that sink in for a minute. Church officials had a man executed because he was translating the words of Jesus into a language so that everybody could understand. That's just mind-blowing, isn't it? Today, pastors, I mean, we're, we're just like, oh, please, we, can't, we would love to get you to read your Bible, right? There's so many ways you can read it. There's apps like YouVersion you can download for free. And we were just like, please read your Bible. Please, please read your Bible. There was a time when that wasn't even possible. And William Tyndale gave his life to that cause. And that cause is endured even to today. You may not know this, but the Bible is the number one selling bestseller of all time, bestselling book of all time. In, in, in America alone, every year, there are 20 million copies of the English Bible that are sold. So his impact has just continued on for generation after generation. The reason I tell you that is because I want you to see William Tyndale is an example of a guy who had a calling on his life in his generation for the kingdom of God. There was a calling on his life in his generation, in his era, his time, and it was for the kingdom of God. I want you to understand that because I believe that's our story too. Every single one of us in this room, I believe the same thing is true. There is a calling on your life, in your generation, for the kingdom of God. Even if you don't yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I, th I think you know this, but our heart at Frontline, what we want for every single person who comes to Frontline is to come to this place where we have fully surrendered our lives to the Lordship of Jesus, where we, we know him as our Lord and Savior, and he's taken our sins, and we have this hope and this future uh, of a new life in him. That's what we want for everybody. But even if you don't yet know Christ, even if you don't yet know Jesus in that way, I still believe that from the foundation of time, your purpose, you were designed uh, with a calling on your life, in your generation, for the kingdom of God. And so today, what I want to talk about, to wrap up the series, I want to talk about what does it mean to live bravely? What does it mean to live with boldness and with courage, into the con in, with conviction into the calling that is on our lives? What does it mean to do that? How do we actually live with courage and boldness? We've been wrestling through fear. How do we live with boldness and courage into the calling that God has placed in our lives? And so uh, if you want, if you brought your Bible, um, you can turn to Joshua chapter one. That's the text we're gonna be in this morning. And if not, uh, we're gonna put it up on the screen for you. We, we're not gonna chain it to the Bible to a pulpit or anything like that. It's gonna be available in multiple ways for you. Um, but Joshua one is where we're going. And the reason is because Joshua was a character in the scriptures that had a calling on his life, in his generation, in his time for the kingdom of God. And he played a key role from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible tells a story of God's redemptive plan for all of humanity that unfolds throughout history. And so Joshua, if we can pick up where he is in the story, the book of Joshua follows the book of Deuteronomy in the Bible. So at the end of Deuteronomy, the period of time that's ending is it, the people of Israel have been wandering in the desert for 40 years after um, their exodus from Egypt. And so now it's time for them to take possession of the promised land. And so this is how the book of Joshua begins. Uh, Joshua 1 verse 1 says this, After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you, Joshua, to lead these people. 
the Israelites across the Jordan River into the land I am giving them. I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set your foot, you will be on land I have given you. From the Negev wilderness in the south to the Lebanon mountains in the north, from the Euphrates River in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, including all the land of the Hittites. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live, for I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. Be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. He's talking about the law and the the scriptures. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What a powerful passage of scripture. What a powerful just call from God. So so the beginning of the book of Joshua, it starts out with the death of Moses. So a new era is beginning. It's time for a new leader, for a new generation, and there's a new task in front of them. In, in the, rede- the story of the unfolding redemption of all of humankind, God's plan uh, from Genesis to Revelation, where we are in the story and what's next for the people of Israel is they have to cross the Jordan River and they have to take possession of the promised land. If they don't do that, if they don't step into that calling, then what's going to happen is, um, you know, the Israelites won't take possession of the promised land, the land of Israel. Uh, king David will never eventually become the king. And from King David's line, we know eventually Jesus came. And so this is a critical next step in the progression of the, of the redemptive story that God is telling throughout all of humanity. And so Joshua understood this. And so I just want to make a couple of observations about Joshua himself, if I could, for just a moment. Um, In the book of Deuteronomy, four different times, Joshua is appointed the leader. As Moses' kind of life is drawing to a close, four different times in the book of Deuteronomy, Joshua is clearly appointed the leader, and all four occasions, the same phrase is used, be strong and courageous. Then in Joshua chapter one, the passage that we just read, Three times in verse six, verse seven, and verse nine, it is said again, God says to him, be strong and courageous. So seven times between the end of the book of Deuteronomy and the first chapter of Joshua, seven times it is said to Joshua, be strong and courageous, which is a number of completeness and fullness in the Bible. So here's the question I want to ask you. What do you think Joshua's problem was? Not a trick question. What do you think his problem was? He's terrified, yes. He was absolutely terrified. He was absolutely afraid. He knew that there was a calling on his life to be the leader of Israel. And he knew the task that was before them and before their generation. He had no idea how in the world are we gonna cross the Jordan River and take possession of this land. And the other thing that Joshua knew for sure is that he was not Moses. He knew that. Moses was awesome. Moses goes toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. 
Moses, you know, puts his staff in the ground and the, and the Red Sea parts and the Israelites walk across on dry land. Moses goes up Mount Sinai. He sees God face to face and he comes down with the Ten Commandments. I mean, Moses was awesome. Scholars have long talked about the difference in terminology between Moses and Joshua. Take a look at this. Moses, whenever he's referred to, is, is called God's servant. He's referred to as the Lord's servant. The word servant in the Hebrew meant like a project manager. This is like someone you would put in charge of your most important clients, your most important projects. Um, the, the word actually, the word for servant in Hebrew is used several other places in the Old Testament talking about uh, prophets or angels. Okay, so that's the, the level. It's like the highest honor that, some, that a human being could be given. God's, Moses was God's servant. Joshua, whenever he's talked about, is, is referred to as Moses' assistant. <laughs> I, just, I find that hilarious. Maybe you don't find that so funny. By the way, Joshua was 80 years old when, in Joshua 1 when this takes place. He was 40 years old, it's, the text says, when um, they spied out the land of Canaan. So then they've wandered for 40 years in the desert. So he's somewhere around 80 years old, and he's still referred to as Moses' assistant. In fact, he's referred that way all the rest of his life until his death at, at the age of 110. In fact, he never gets to hear it in his lifetime. It's only after he dies that they finally said, yeah, and Joshua, the Lord's servant. Like they finally call him the Lord's servant after he's dead. So for the whole entire you know, time he's alive, he knows he's Moses' assistant. This is the Bible's way of basically saying, you know, the difference between Moses and Joshua, I mean, Joshua wasn't just the assistant, to, the, the assistant regional manager, he was the assistant to the regional manager, for those of you who are fans of The Office. He's not Tom Brady, he's the guy that hands Tom Brady his Gatorade after he makes another historic touchdown drive to send them into the Super Bowl. You get the, you get the picture? This is Joshua. He didn't measure up. And the person who understood that best was Joshua. Nobody knew it more than him. He knew he didn't measure up. He knew he was no Moses. And so I, I think that same scenario plays itself out in every single one of our lives. When we're young, even to the point when we're old, men and women, the, the question that we wrestle with the most, I think is this question, do I have what it takes? As we think about our purpose, as we think about why am I here on this earth, what, as we think about any kind of sense of calling that might be on our lives, we wrestle with this question, do I actually have what it takes? Uh, young men ask that question about their destiny. Women ask that question, do I measure up? Am I enough? Do I, do I, do I measure up to her or to them or to whatever? And I think um, in the older generation, there's no old people here today, but if you're in the older generation, maybe the version of this question you ask is, do I still have what it takes? Do I still got it? Do I, do I still have something to offer? That's the question that we wrestle with. Do I have what it takes? Um, I've been driven, especially in my younger years of my life, I was driven by that question, by fear of what the answer to that question might actually be. Do I have what it takes? My dad was a football star. Uh, Norman Bloom was known for his uh, football days. My dad was a captain of his high school football team, and they went undefeated that year, his senior year. And my dad actually was the first man in his uh, family who went to college, and he went to college on a full-ride football scholarship to a D2 school. 
So I grew up as a kid hearing stories from per- total strangers. People would come to me and say, oh man, if you only knew, your dad was such a great football player. And like people would tell me stories about my dad and the stuff he would do on the football field. He w- my dad was like the Moses of football, okay? And so uh, when I got into high school, I-, I played sports. I was involved in sports, but there was one sport I absolutely would not play. Guess what it was? Football, Absolutely. I would not go after football. Somebody asked me after last service, was your dad like, and I'm like, no, my dad was great about it. My dad never expected me to play football, but I would never play football. I played other sports and I had friends who were in football and they would say like, why don't you like, let's, why don't you go out for football this year? And I always had excuses, right? I always had some reason. There was always something, oh, you know, this season, there was always something else that made it so I couldn't play football. And so I'd have these excuses, but, but here's the thing. One of the, the nice things about getting older is as you get older, you just don't care anymore. And you can admit to things that you couldn't admit to when you were young. And so the truth of the matter is of why I didn't go out for football is because I had this voice in my head saying, what if you don't have what it takes? What if you go out for football and you're just mediocre? You're Norm Bloom's son. What if you go out, what if you don't measure up? What if you don't do anything great? What if you're just okay? And fear of what the answer to that question might be and what that would do to me just made it so that was just something I absolutely would not get involved. I'd do anything else, but I would not play that sport. That's my story But I bet you if we went around the room right now, every single one of us would have some way that this question has played out in your life. Do I have what it takes? When when you've thought about your purpose in life, when you've thought about the calling that might be on your life, the question we wrestle with is like, do I have what it takes? Am I enough? Do I measure up? Or in later stages of life, do I still have what it takes? Do I still have anything to offer? And so here, here's another advantage of getting older and walking with Jesus for a long time as I've learned something. I'd like to just tell you, I'd like to just kind of give you this gift if I could this morning. Uh, here's what I want to say to you. Forget about this question, okay? Forget about, go back to that question for a minute, please. Forget about this question, do I have what it takes? Just, it's a stupid question. And the reason it's a stupid question is because this question assumes that somehow there, there's something that I'm supposed to prove by my own merit, by something within myself, do I have what it takes? And I, I have to sort of prove somehow to the cosmos that I have what it takes. That's ridiculous. Because what the, what the story of God teaches us over and over and over again is that God doesn't call people who have what it takes. God doesn't call people who are already equipped. What God does is he equips those who are called for his purposes. So that means that you already have in Christ, you already have gifted to you by the Holy Spirit, everything you already need to live out the calling that he has placed on your life. It's already been given yours in Jesus. The question isn't, do I have what it takes? The answer is no, you don't. Neither do I. None of us have what it takes. He has what it takes. And in Christ, you've already been given from the foundation of time. Ephesians talks about we are God's workmanship created in advance for him to do good works, to live out a calling on our lives. He has already gifted you with everything you need to live out the unique and special calling that is on your life in your generation for the kingdom of God. And that's some good news. 
And so a better question to ask, if I could just say, forget about the question, do I have what it takes? I'm just gonna set some of you free today. Just feel free. I give you permission as your pastor to set that question aside. This is the better question, the more important question to ask. What is God already doing in my generation and how has he prepared me to join him? That's the, the essential question. What is God already doing? As I look around in my generation, as I think about the world I live in, what is God already up to? What is God already doing in my generation? And how has he uniquely prepared me and, and equipped me to join him in that? Maybe there's some of you in this room who will be part of the, a move of God to uh, you know, do away with abortion in this country. Wouldn't that be something? Maybe some of you will be called by God to, to go to people groups who are unreached right now, who, who don't have the, uh, the, the calling of God on their lives, who don't have salvation, who don't know the message of Jesus, people who have turned away or walked away from the church. So what, what could God already be doing in your generation that he could be actually calling you and preparing you to join him in? That's the real question of life. It has, and if you're older uh, in this room, maybe the question is, what is still possible in my lifetime? What is still possible in my lifetime? You, you know, God didn't call you to just disappear onto a golf course at some point in life. I'm not saying you can't go enjoy golf, but if you're still alive, you ain't done yet. There is still something he has for you to do in your generation that's still possible in your lifetime for the kingdom of God. None of us get a pass on that. And so what could that be for you? I love this. If we can continue, go back to the text and just continue the story going forward. This is um, how Joshua responds to this call, this conviction. Be strong and courageous. Verse 10, it says, So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, Go through the camp and tell the people, Get your supplies ready. Three days from now you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. I love this passage. It's one of my favorite passages where he says this because for Joshua, this is the moment, right? It, it, all, it always comes down to a moment, doesn't it, where we make a decision to just live boldly, to just be courageous. So, so he, this is the moment where he decides to pick up the cause that, that it was on his life, in his generation for the kingdom of God. And the way it looks is he says, listen, he goes to the Israelites, gathers them together and says, look, Moses is dead, but we're not. We're still alive. The mission is still alive. So get your stuff together. Three days from now, we're crossing the Jordan River and we're gonna take possession of the promised land. And what I love about that is he has no idea how. He has no idea. How are we gonna cross? The Jordan River of years is this, especially this was at flood stage at this time of year when the story took place. They, they had no idea how they were gonna cross the Jordan River. And in fact, what they have to do, if you read forward in the story, is the Israelites have to take the Ark of the Covenant. They go all the way down to the water and it's not until they actually put their feet in the water that God stops the water from flowing and makes it possible for them to cross the Jordan. They just had to say yes and go down and put their feet in the water. They didn't get the how. They didn't get the plan laid out for them. Them. And that's how it is for each of us. It comes down to a moment, a moment of obedience, a moment where we say, okay, yes. We say, I'm going to be strong and courageous, Joshua says. I'm going to be bold and I'm going to pick up this cause. I'm going to pick up this calling that's on my life in my generation for the kingdom of God. So the question that we have to ask for ourselves uh, is this question, what's the kingdom cause for our day? 
what does that mean for us? What is the kingdom cause in our generation? Obviously, in our time, in our era of the, the story of God's redemptive plan for all of humanity, we're not supposed to cross a river and take possession of a land, I don't think. I don't think there's anything like that that we're supposed to do. So what is the kingdom cause for our day? Jesus spoke the mission of the church in Matthew 28. It's called the Great Commission where he says, go into all the world, to all the nations and make disciples. Baptize them and teach them how to follow me. That's the mission. That's, that's what the church is called to do. Uh, but to take that even a step further, I love how the apostle Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter five. Paul is talking to a church in Corinth He's talking to this group of Jesus followers and he's giving them the kingdom cause for our day. What is the era we're living in? What is the church supposed to be about? He says this, verse 18, and God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. That's what we are. We are Christ's ambassadors. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are Christ's ambassador. Seriously, turn to your neighbor. You are Christ's ambassador. Speaks to identity. It speaks speaks to the call and the mission that we've been put to. We are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead to people, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made with, right with God through Christ. And that, that's the message of the gospel, this message of reconciliation that Jesus offered his life on our behalf as a sin offering to make it possible for us to be reconciled to God. The Bible is a story about God continuing to go in search of people and look for people and reconcile them back to himself. And so what are we? We, not only are we redeemed in Christ, but we've, as the church, we've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. We are plan A, B, and C, and D, and every other plan that is made possible for the world to know the gospel. It's us, it's the church. God makes his appeal through us. That's how people learn who Jesus is. That's how disciples are made. It's the church. And so when we make the appeal, come back to God, it's God making his appeal through us, through the church. That's what he planned on us to do. That's what we're called to do. Each and every one of us, we are an ambassador for Christ. So with that being said, the question I want us to kind of land on here is, how does God want to make his appeal through you? This speaks to identity. On a personal level, this speaks to purpose. How does God want to make his appeal for the gospel through you, through your life. Absolutely, this would call us to look at our our passions, look at our giftings, look at the way we've already been trained and equipped, our life experiences. But, But let me just tell you this, without the Holy Spirit, you will never find the answer to that question. That question will remain unanswered for you for the rest of your life without the power of the Holy Spirit. The good news is the Holy Spirit wants to answer that question for you. I I promise you, he wants to give you that answer. The Bible says that all we have to do, when we ask for the Holy Spirit, when we ask for guidance from the Holy Spirit, God grants us that. And so what remains for us is to, to go after that question, to seek out the Holy Spirit, to seek God's guidance and say, God, Holy Spirit, would you speak to me? Would you show me what it is? How do you wanna make your appeal through me? 
And I'm telling you, if you hold that calling for your life, if you hold that pursuit in high reverence and high awe, what will happen is that that pursuit will become the most fulfilling thing that you ever do with your life. And the reason is because you were designed, from the foundation of time, you were designed with a calling. It's a calling on your life, in your generation, for the kingdom of God. Maybe it's not like William Tyndale to you know, translate the Bible into English. Maybe it's not like Joshua to lead a group of people to cross a river and take possession of a land. But what is it? There's something that he's called you to do on your life, in your generation, for the kingdom of God to be advanced. So here's how we wanted to close this um, series. Um, we wanted to close by taking communion together. And uh, maybe you grew up in a tradition where it was called something different, like maybe the Eucharist, or maybe it was called the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper. Um, but communion is a sacred meal. It's actually a sacrament of the church. The word sacrament means mystery. And so it's this mysterious time where we meet God in, this, in the elements, the symbols that we interact with. And the context of communion comes from um, in the life of Jesus. On the night Jesus was betrayed, Luke 22 tells us the story. He gathered with his disciples in an upper room. And as part of a, a larger meal called the Seder meal for Passover, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to each of his disciples. And speaking about the cross and what he was about to enter into, he said, this is my body, which was broken for you. And then in the same way, he took a cup and... He, he said, this cup is my blood that was shed for you. And then the famous statement he makes, verse 22 of, or verse 19 of Luke 22, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And so for centuries, all over the world, in all different languages, the church has been doing exactly that. We've been taking bread, we've been taking a cup. In our case, it's a cracker and a small vial of juice. And we take it, those elements, within ourselves. And when we do that, we are doing it in remembrance of Jesus. Communion is a time where we remind ourselves that it was by, by the body of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus on the cross that made reconciliation with God possible for us. And that through the shed blood of Jesus, through the broken body of Jesus, we have already been given everything we need to live out the calling that's on our lives. I was thinking about the significance of this, even just this week. And, and the thing that really hit me was just you know, in our world, you know, we, we have all these things we have to do to be a part of things. Like there's a membership fee to, to pay, or there's some sort of thing you have to do or accomplish in order to be part of this club or that club or that group of people. And so what do we have to do to be part of the church, part of the message of reconciliation? What we have to do is we have to receive. And that's the power and the significance of, of what we're interacting with right now is that Jesus said, look, it's not about the question, do you have what it takes? What are you bringing to the table? It's about your willingness to be able to receive the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus on your behalf. It's not about, do you have what it takes? Because the answer is you don't. You don't have what it takes. But the good news is Jesus did, and he did it on your behalf. And so our, our ability to be part of it has to do with our ability to receive, to receive the body of Jesus, to receive the blood of Jesus, and to believe that in, in doing that, he has already granted us everything we need to live out the calling he has in our lives. 
And so this morning, um, I, w- I would love to offer a prayer and then we're going to take communion. Um, there are four stations, two right here on either side of the room and then two in the back as well. So if you can kind of look around and figure out which one is closest to you. And um, we're going to sing a song. After I pray, we're going to sing a song. And as we do, I want you to go and, and take the elements, take the bread, take the cup. And if, if you're alone, you can, you can take it alone. Um, but if you're with someone, maybe a spouse or a, a family or just some friends, I encourage you just to take it together in your seats. But don't wait. We're not going uh, to um, have a time where we take it together. But take the elements, go back to your seat and just take them. This is a time between you and God and you with uh, just searching out in your own life. God, I I just remind myself today of the cross. I remind myself that I've already been gifted everything I need to live out the calling on my life. Maybe for some of you, there's a fear that that has been identified throughout this series. And maybe this is a time where you just offer that fear up. Maybe maybe today is the day you say, yes, even if you don't know the how, yes, I'm gonna be strong and courageous. I'm gonna be bold. I'm gonna live into the calling that God has for me. Maybe this is the moment that you say, I'm gonna surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna, I'm gonna quit trying to ask the question, do I have what it takes? Because I don't. I'm just gonna let him lead me in my life. But I'd love to say a prayer and then um, you're free to go take the elements and then um, we'll, we'll continue to sing. Lord Jesus, we just come before you this morning. Once again, we are just humbled and we're made aware as we gather around the table Um, It's a table that we didn't bring anything to. We didn't provide anything to. It's a table where it's all been provided for us. Your broken body, your shed blood is enough. It measures up. It has what it takes. And so we acknowledge that this morning. We remember that this morning. And um, God, we just put aside and we surrender to you any fear that may be holding us back, keeping us from fully living boldly and courageously into the calling that you placed on our life, in our generation for the kingdom of God. God, we thank you this message of the gospel. Not only do you reconcile us and redeem us and take care of our sins of the cross, but then you invite us and we get to be a part of the church and get to be a part of your kingdom advancing. We just thank you for that, Jesus. We're grateful and we remind ourselves again of it today. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen. All right.